Testament Reading Podcast. I'm your host, Joel, and today we're skipping around a lot. Uh, We're focused on Exodus 34 and chapter 40, along with Leviticus 8 through 10 and chapter 16. You can find and subscribe to this podcast by using Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Uh, I've included all the links in the show notes. And if questions come up during the course of your reading, I'd love to hear about them. Please ask them at bit.ly slash capital A, lowercase sk, hyphen, capital O, capital T. That's bit.ly slash ask, hyphen, O-T. Now, our chapters today all spiral around this idea of the holiness of God. God's holiness requires certain boundaries to keep the holiness from being dangerous to a sinful people in a sinful world. Human beings, as we've seen, can't behold God and live. Uh, That's why God refused to show God's face to Moses. And in the same way, the Hebrew people needed to worship God deliberately and carefully. The power that God has to purge human beings from sin is similar to the power that modern medicine has to cut out a tumor or an infection or to cauterize a wound. There's extraordinary possibilities for restoration here and for curative properties, but when we do this carelessly, real harm can come to people. God's holiness is the same way, and we're going to see a particularly vivid example of this in Leviticus chapter 10. But we'll begin with a couple of chapters from Exodus. Exodus 34 concludes the three-chapter arc of the story of the golden calf and the consequences stemming from it, and it opens with this marvelous proclamation of who God is. And I want you to notice that as we've traveled through Exodus, more and more of God's character has been revealed to us. Initially, in Exodus 3 and 4, God self-reveals as the great I am, saying to Moses, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. And then in chapter 20, God self-reveals further as, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That God is not just existence personified, but is the one who brings us out of slavery, who liberates us. And here in chapter 34, we see God as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I've included a video linked in the show notes that goes into a little bit more depth about uh, this idea of God's character that's revealed here. Uh, But I think what we can see is that from the very beginning, God has been a deity holding in perfect balance the need for justice and the need for mercy. While we sometimes look at Jewish law as Christians and think of it as very works-based, which in some degree it is, uh, from the very beginning, God has been gracious and merciful, and that's been a part of the Hebrew understanding of God's character. Now, part of this balance between God's justice and God's mercy involves an asymmetry. Even here, we see that God punishes the wicked only for three to four generations. And often I think of this as the time it takes for uh, bad behaviors to work themselves out of family systems. We see this with drug abuse or with alcohol abuse. Um, We see this sometimes with infidelity, that it takes a couple of generations for the trauma to heal. This isn't God being... 
capricious and saying, hey, you know, your mom or your dad was kind of a scumbag and you're going to have to pay for their sins. No, not so much. These are the natural consequences of living with abuse, with infidelity. These are the natural consequences of living with sin, like secondhand smoke. We risk having an effect on those around us. But there is an asymmetry here. Three to four generations that this this punishment for the wicked lasts, whereas those who love God, there's a grace that lasts for as many as a thousand generations. Even at this point in the story, God's mercy has the final word. So Moses has this divine epiphany, but then continues to beg once again for God to remain in keeping with his character and to travel with the Hebrew people on their way through the wilderness. This uh, continues the conversation Moses was having with God in Exodus 33. And, and, and Moses confesses the Hebrew need for God, summarizing the same arguments that he made in chapter 33. And in response to this, God kind of agrees, uh, not maybe in the way that Moses hoped, but God makes a covenant with Moses. And the covenant is basically, I'm a jealous God and I'm going to be jealous for my people. I'm going to ask you to remain faithful to no other gods but Yahweh alone. Uh, and then God goes on to spell out a little bit of what that means, uh, offering almost an alternative form of the Ten Commandments, which emphasizes some of the Book of the Covenant uh, that we did not read that goes from Exodus 21 to 23. And it also emphasizes uh, a, a keeping from idolatry. Uh, so God says, no covenants with other people. Please respect the barriers that God has erected in worship. Now, God's holiness doesn't mean we need to walk on eggshells around God while we worship. Instead, it gets back to this idea of uh, cutting out a tumor or cauterizing a wound. We can't do this carelessly. For our own safety, there is a certain gravitas to our worship. We need to do so. We need to worship intentionally and deliberately. Uh, in other words, we need to respect the danger that sin poses to our very being, to our very life. The Israelites understood this to some degree. That's, I think, why they got freaked out by the glowing face of Moses. There's something about being in the presence of God that stands out to other people. Now, our faces are not going to glow necessarily in the same way that Moses's does when we regularly spend time with God, uh, but our lives should be impacted by regular time spent with God in scripture, how we treat our friends, how we treat our neighbors, even how we treat our enemies and others. Uh, that should, our time that we spend with God should have an impact on that. And, and I'm curious to hear from you, how does your face, your very life shine with the holiness and mercy that you receive from God? Before we move to chapter 40, there was a question about uh, Exodus 34.19 from Rita L. She asks, in Exodus 34.19, where all firstborns are to be given to the Lord, when it says to redeem your firstborn son, is there more to this than just dedicating him to the Lord's work? And that's a great question, Rita. It's an interesting question. Uh, in Exodus, whenever we hear the term firstborn son, our minds should immediately snap to the plague against the firstborn in Egypt and to Passover. 
There's a certain gravity to God's mercy and grace. And one way the Israelites observed this was acknowledging that because of God's mercy in sparing the firstborn sons of the Hebrew people in Passover, those very same firstborn are owned by God. That that's actually the factory default setting of the firstborn. Just after the Passover observance in Exodus 13, there's more discussion of what it looks like to redeem the firstborn children. It's another way of remembering and observing Passover. So yes, this is slightly different than just dedicating the firstborn to the Lord's work. Thinking about it in another way, this is a culture that would often sacrifice children. And by dedicating the firstborn, by redeeming the firstborn in the way that is described in Exodus 13, this is a way to accommodate to the expectations of the Hebrew people uh, that are sort of endemic in the culture, that the firstborn son could, that the sacrifice of the firstborn son could, in some sense, sway the actions of God. However, because child sacrifice wasn't allowed, uh, there's got to be something else to do with the firstborn son here. So God uh, kind of gives this as a way to do something with the firstborn son without sacrificing him. I hope that answers your question, Rita. Thank you for, for asking it. In chapters 35 to 39, there is a discussion of the preparation of the tabernacle in detail. And we see some of that detail in, in chapter 40 with the culmination of the book of Exodus being the construction of this holy place, this tabernacle. And certainly we would expect, you know, Moses would be able to enter this place, right? I mean, he's been on Mount Sinai 40 days in God's presence. What's the difference? But no, not even Moses is allowed in the tabernacle when God's present. And this hints at something really important. In spite of how thoughtful and, and, and how faithful Moses has been, in spite of how important he is to the Hebrew people, he isn't the culmination of the promises of God to Israel. He's not the one through whom God will crush the serpent, through whom God will crush the forces of evil, as implicitly promised in Genesis 3. There's another who is to come, who will journey into the heavenly tabernacle and intercede on behalf of humanity, delivering us from sin and death. And for the time being, that one is not Moses. Moses does not enter the tabernacle. That, as faithful as he is, Moses does not go into God's presence again after Sinai. So before we get into Leviticus, a, a brief word on it. Leviticus is the central book of the Torah. The Torah, as you may know, is another name for the first five books of the Bible. And Torah in Hebrew literally means teaching or instruction. And Leviticus is the central book here because it shows the Hebrew people how they can approach God to have fellowship between the, uh, the, the divine and humanity. And this is a really, really big deal. Leviticus details all the boundaries and all the divisions that are necessary in order to do this safely. And doing this is important because this is fellowship that has been uh, un unreachable to some degree since the fall. Four elements are very important to the Levitical law, and you'll see these four elements come up even in the narrative portions that we're reading. You'll see fire, which is a representation of the divine presence. You'll see blood, which is a representation of life. And there's also a, a cleansing or, or detergent almost aspect to this. There's oil, 
which is a representation both of consecration and agriculture. There's some ties between oil and earth. And then there's water, which is a representation of cleansing. These roughly correspond to the four elements of fire, air, earth, and water, but these aim in slightly different directions. So all of the discussion of sacrifices in the installation ceremony of Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, uh, all of that that goes into Exodus 3, I think it seems at first blush a little bit over the top. <laughs> Maybe you thought so too. There are all, all sorts of specific directions. And I know I sometimes find myself just kind of skimming these chapters, almost zoning out. I was talking to a friend uh, right before I recorded this who was saying that it's funny that God can create the entire world in two chapters and yet requires something like 40 chapters to detail this entire intricate system of sacrifice and preparation of the tabernacle. And I think there's something to that. But the deliberate instruction and intentionality here is really, really important. Now, few of us have experienced the emotion and the process of taking a bull or a goat and slaying it. However, one thing I did experience was euthanizing a pet betta fish. This was a fish that my family had inherited because it was abandoned at work by a colleague of my wife's. And when we took it home, uh, I cared for it. I fed it regularly. I cleaned its tank, the whole nine yards. This fish's name was Princess. Uh, named by the class that had adopted it. Um, and even though it was a boy, uh, apparently, you know, I don't know, uh, its name was Princess. We even gave this fish medicine to help deal with its fin rot, which is apparently a thing in betta fish. But one week after maybe eight months of caring for this fish day in and day out, I noticed it regularly at the bottom of its tank, lying on the rocks, kind of sideways not swimming around, not eating, not anything. We thought this is the beginning of the end for poor princess. And, and we thought that the kindest thing to do would be to help end its life. It was clearly suffering. I debated flushing it down the toilet, but I started uh, looking into humane ways of taking care of pet fish that are dying. And, um, and I thought about what going down the toilet must feel like for the fish. I thought, you know, I would feel terrified. Um, and that the kindest thing to do would be euthanizing it through decapitation. And, you know, pardon the, 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 the TMI for those of you who might feel a little squeamish. Uh, you can skip a little bit ahead if you'd like. I got a cutting board. I got a sharp knife ready. I felt like I was dedicating something to God. If, if I'm going to be honest, I was thinking a lot about Leviticus. I took the fish out and I took off its head. I didn't think it was going to be a big deal. But there's a gravity that comes from taking life, even the life of an animal. I spent some time that morning after killing this fish weeping, wishing there had been a better way, wishing I could have helped the fish somehow. I guess you could think that, that I felt deeply the effects of sin, that sin leads to death, and death I had experienced it firsthand. It destroys the life of something. Taking the life of a creature created by God brings a gravitas and a power to the actions of a priest. And offering all the details that Leviticus does, 
I think, make it easier. They, they remind the priest that there is no other way here, that this is the way that you need to dispose of this creature. There isn't any second guessing. So the priests are dedicated, and, and I want you to notice here the appearance of each of the elements. There's blood that anoints the horns of the altar and the extremities of the priests. These designate the places that offer life. Fire shows the presence of God and directs the sacrifices to God. Water ritually cleanses the priests for their work, and oil consecrates them. After their, I guess, ordination and installation, the sacrifices Aaron offers are accepted, and God manifests in an epiphany before the people, showing that the Lord was well-pleased with Aaron's offering. This is the way it ought to work when we follow the directions, when we come before God with thanksgiving in our heart, when we enter God's courts with praise, when we do things by the book decently and in order. This is the way it ought to work. But then we come to the next chapter, when Nadab and Abihu offer sacrifices. They use strange fire, or depending on your translation, perhaps unholy or unauthorized fire. This is a cautionary tale both for those consecrated to serve God and also for the people. Because God's holiness can be dangerous when handled lightly. When we come before God bringing a sacrifice, thinking that we can just do it in any old way, we risk coming face to face with God in a way we hadn't intended to. When we don't preserve the gravitas that God requires in our worship, there's danger. Because God is not our buddy. You know, yes, uh, we have fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. We are called friends of God, but God is wholly other, completely different from us. We can't understand God's ways or God's thoughts, and God's holiness is frighteningly powerful. This is doubly true for spiritual leaders. Nadab and Abihu were called to a greater responsibility, and they didn't take their ordination and installation seriously. And I wonder how this whole process affected Aaron. Was Aaron disillusioned with his work because of this? What pride he must have felt to see his sons join him as the first priests of Israel. What deep sadness he must have felt at their death. Maybe there was anger at God for not showing mercy like God proclaims God has the ability to do. Based on the directions, though, to Aaron in verse 9, it seems possible that Nadab and Abihu might have been drunk when they approached God, and through their thoughtlessness, through their handling of holy things in a careless way, they profaned what ought to have been treated as holy. We don't come before God the same way we come before anyone else. There's a preparation that gets made both for worship leaders and also for those who are coming to worship. One of my spiritual mentors once told me that the butterflies that you feel when you lead worship for the first time should never go away when you lead worship again. And if you aren't feeling butterflies when you come up and, and represent a leader, a spiritual leader before the people, if you're not feeling butterflies, then you're not doing your job. Skipping to chapter 16, we see the importance of the Day of Atonement. We see the importance of the scapegoat for the Israelites. 
there was a realization even at this time that the people of Israel, as people corrupted by sin, would need a periodic cleansing, even though they probably bring sacrifices regularly when they think of uh, the sins that they commit. There's, there's a day of atonement that's necessary to cleanse the Israelites from not only the things that they've done, but the things they've left undone. We can think of this systemic sin we commit as a people sort of like a smog or a miasma. It clouds the air we breathe, and if we don't deal with it regularly, it's going to kill us. Even though it might be a slow death, even though it might be like boiling a frog in water, it's really, really important to deal with. And the Israelites do this through a yearly sacrifice and a scapegoat. The scapegoat took the sins of all the people and bore them away into the wilderness. While we don't use a scapegoat and a day of atonement now, every Lord's Day, every service of worship, we have a time of confession and an assurance of pardon where we can share together the sins that we've committed and a time of personal confession where we can share silently with God the ways that we haven't made it, the ways that we've missed the mark. And this idea to the Hebrews was incredibly important. And it's also incredibly important for Jesus. You see, Jesus not only bore himself our sins as the atoning sacrifice, but he bore them away. He was both the sacrifice of atonement, but also the the scapegoat who took our sins away and buried them where they belong in hell. Some translations in talking about the scapegoat preserve the name Azazel. Azazel was the one for whom the goat is set free in the wilderness. Azazel was the demon representing chaos and disorder, things which sin creates. And by sending the sins metaphorically back into the primordial depths of chaos, by sending these sins on this goat to Azazel, the Hebrew people were, in some sense, trusting God's creative power as we see in Genesis 1, to turn chaos into order and trusting God's creative power to deal with the chaos of sin. You see, God's creative power and God's reconciling and redeeming power are not all that different. That's all for Exodus 34 and 40, along with Leviticus 8 through 10 and 16. Next week, we'll continue to skip around a little bit. We'll read one more chapter of Leviticus, Leviticus 24. And then we'll jump to Numbers. We'll start in Numbers 6 and then read Numbers 10 through 13. This should be the last time we jump around for a little bit. And uh, like I said last week, we're going to revisit these chapters we're skipping over. We'll do that later in our reading plan at the end of year three. But for now, uh, because so many reading plans uh, find their death in Leviticus, we're just following the story of how God's people traveled through the wilderness, trying to hit some of the narrative pieces and, and get some of the flavor of the laws. I hope you'll be able to follow the story of God's people, even without some of the rules and regulations they received on the way. May God bless you in your reading of Scripture.